peace be with you. If you are a first-time guest uh, here today, I just want to say hello, what's up, what's popping, what's crackalacking. Uh, my name is Jamal. I am uh, one of the pastors here. And if you suddenly feel like leaving because of my introduction, don't. Uh, we are so glad that you are here. And uh, we pray that today's service would be enriching to you, that you will uh, learn about Jesus, learn more about the Christian faith, and uh, that uh, today will inspire you to take a step closer to him. Uh, let's pray. Gracious Father, you truly are good. You truly are faithful. You are, are true. There is no one like you in all of the earth. You reign sovereign and supreme over every creature, over every creeping thing, over the blades of grass and how it blows, over the heat over the wind, over the sea creatures, and we praise you. We praise you for your son, Jesus Christ. I praise you because there's no one like him. And I ask you, a Father, to allow your Holy Spirit to manifest himself here at this moment in a way in which that I cannot take credit for, that your people cannot take credit for. And we wait on you to have your way. Help us to submit our minds to your word. Would you speak to us, Lord, how you best see fit, whether it's through, a, through thunder or through a small, still voice at this time. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, well, today we uh, have the joy of starting a, a new series uh, entitled Daniel. It is uh, a book that you will find in the Old Testament, uh, kind of couched in between uh, prophetic literature. The book of Daniel is a profound book, and we're going to be uh, jumping into it for six weeks. Now, there's 12 chapters in the book of Daniel. We're only going to deal with the first six. The first six are uh, narratives about the life of Daniel and his three friends that you just read. Their Babylonian names are Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Or according to the Veggie Tales, it's Shaq, Rack, and Benny, all right? Hey, I got five kids. You got to be on top of it, right? Um, and so we're going to live, we're going to just dive into those first six chapters, uh, see uh, what the Spirit is, is speaking to us uh, through the way in which they, engulf, they, uh, they uh, went through um, exile. And uh, the book of Daniel is going to teach us how do we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? How do we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? How do we remain loyal uh, to the truest royal uh, when it's not popular, when it's going to cost us something. Now, the next six chapters of the book of Daniel is extremely important. All of God's word is important. All of it is God-breathed. Um, it is what we call apocalyptic language or uh, literature, excuse me. And uh, it's fascinating. It, some of it tells us about what we can expect in the future. Some of it was what Daniel was uh, 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 able to prophesize through visions and dreams um, that 
had already taken place. And chapter 11, for example, is a phenomenal chapter, a prophecy that Daniel was able to interpret. And most of what Daniel was able to interpret has already come true. In fact, some scholars or people who would consider them scholars who have, uh, but who don't hold to maybe God's word as being inerrant would say that it's too good to be true, that too many prophecies came true. So there's some type of forgery after the process. Uh, But that's how prophecy works, right? Uh, So we're we're not going to look at those last six chapters, but it's not because they're not important or because it's irrelevant. It's just that we um, as as pastors uh, thought that this would be a great uh, way to uh, come alongside our series in the book of Matthew. Um, In Matthew, we see that Jesus is preparing his disciples to live in the midst of a hostile culture as despised minorities. He is teaching them how to flourish um, in a kingdom way in the midst of a society Uh, that would define human flourishing um, in in a way that is opposing to his kingdom virtue. And so we're going to see in this book over and over in the first six chapters that uh, Daniel and his his friends are going to be facing a similar situation, uh, but they are going to remain loyal to the truest royal. They are going to sing the Lord's song in a strange land. And this is an important book. This is an important word for us here today um, as culture around us here in America is, is changing in such a way that being a Christian now and moving into the future is not going to be something that's really popular or accepted. Um, labels uh, are and will be put on, on, on people who claim to be disciples of Jesus or who claim to be Christians because our society is moving further and further away from a Judeo-Christian vision of human flourishing and all that that entails into more of a vision that says uh, what matters now is what makes you most happiest. And whatever makes you happiest, uh, that's what you go for. And so uh, we are constantly and more and more as, a, as Christians uh, going to be looked at with uh, unfair presuppositions and unfair assumptions. And so it's important that we understand as we feel more and more like exiles, as things get tighter and tighter um, here in this culture, that we as a church have a clear vision of what it looks like to be faithful. And I think the book of Daniel does an amazing job to help us to do so uh, holistically and to give us that vision. And so uh, let's just talk about the context real quick of the book of Daniel. Uh, Historically, uh, we'll see that uh, Babylon is going to come over and take over Judah. And we'll see that historically, Babylon rebelled against the Assyrian Empire in 626 BC. They had tried to overthrow Assyrian uh, for many years before then, but finally started to have some success. Um, And they overthrew the capital of Nineveh in 612 BC. And then Babylon became the master of the Middle East when it defeated the Egyptian armies in 605 BC. So it's around this time that Nebuchadnezzar, who was a powerful king, um, who was probably one of the most powerful kings to have ever lived, is going to set his eyes on sieging uh, 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 the Lord's property uh, and and the Lord's people in in Judah. And so we read in verse 1 that it's the third year of the king of Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, he came to Jerusalem and he laid siege to it. And the Lord handed Jacoam of of Judah over to him along with some of the vessels of the Lord's house. So the siege ends up taking place 
And uh, it's interesting here that it says that the Lord allowed it. The Lord handed his king, his people's king, over to the king of Nebuchadnezzar. And it's uh, it's interesting that this happens, and it's important that this happens. It's important that we recognize that the Lord did it, um, and it's important uh, that we see that God was sovereign in it. In Jeremiah chapter 25, uh, around the same time, Jeremiah is prophesying and preaching uh, to Israel to the Lord's people, and he's warning them, and he's following the likes of prophets behold. Way back in uh, the Torah, we see God warning his people, I'm going to give you a land, you're to live and be set apart, and, and to be holy. And if you don't, if you rebel against my ways, this is what's going to happen to you. And so the Lord has been compassionate and merciful throughout, and finally enough is enough. And the Lord gives Jeremiah this word. The Lord sent all of his servants, the prophets to you, Time and time again, but you have not obeyed or even paid attention. He announced, turn each of you from your evil way of life and from your evil deeds. Live in the land that the Lord gave to you and your ancestors long ago and forever. Do not allow other gods to serve them and to bow uh, in worship to them. And do not anger me by the work of your hands, then I will do you no harm. But you have not obeyed me. This is the Lord's declaration with the result that you are, that you have angered me by the work of your hands and brought disaster on yourself. Therefore, this is what the Lord of army says, because you have not obeyed my words, I am going to sin for all the families of the north. Uh, this is the Lord's declaration and sin for my servant Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon, and I will bring them against this land, against its residents, and against all of the surrounding nations, and I will completely destroy them and make them an example of horror and scorn and ruins forever. I will eliminate the sound of joy and gladness from them, the voice of the groom and the bride, the sound of millstones, and the light of the lamp. So the Lord is warning uh, his people, this is going to happen. He tells them how it's going to happen. I'm going to raise up another king, a foreign king. He's going to come over. They're going to uh, siege this area, and it's going to be a great terror. And so I want to imagine, you'd imagine this scene. And you really don't have to do much imagining. Last night I read through uh, a large chunk of the book of Lamentations in order to settle myself and set myself into how this must have felt to see your land, your promised land, uh, the land of your ancestors, the place that you take pride in, Deceased by foreign people who are ungodly, um, who are unholy, do not have the same virtue or, or ethics, and they completely are going to ransack everything that you own. Now, this is the first of three uh, sieges that we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar do. So he's not going to come in and do everything at once. This is the first of three. And the reason that the Lord is doing this is to discipline his people. His people's hearts were hard. They have forgotten him. And he had warned them from over and over. And God doesn't do this because he's evil or because he's bad, but he does this because he loves his people. He wants their hearts to be softened. He wants the best for them. He knows how humans will flourish and the best way for humans to flourish. And that is for them to submit themselves 
under the authority of the one who created all things, the authority of the one who is omnipotent, all-powerful, the authority of the one who is omniscient, <laughs> the authority of the one who sees everything, the one who sees the very beginning to the very end. And he has called his people out of Egypt, out of darkness, out of slavery, into light so that they could be a light unto the nation, so that they could be distinct and holy. But his people are starting to look just like the other nations. They're starting to be a people of injustice. They're starting to be a people of idolatry and adultery. And God says, I am raising up a king that is going to, that is going to wreak havoc. But, but God doesn't do this and doesn't exile them without hope. The book of Jeremiah, we see that he gives them a promise that after 70 years, um, he will come to their defense and restoration will begin to happen. In fact, he told them, he's like, yo, Y'all might as well get comfortable in exile. He's like, build houses, build vineyards, do your thing, because you all are going to be here for a while. But I know the plans that I have for you, plans to prosper you. And so it's important to know that, that God does allow us to go through um, discipline, but he does it because he wants us to be in right relationship with him as his people. And so the Bible says that Nebuchadnezzar comes to Judah and it's interesting that Daniel points out the fact that he took the vessels from the house of God and he's going to bring them to the house of his God. And this is what we call uh, henotheism, right? Monotheism is the worship of one God. Polytheism is the worship of many God. Henotheism is similar to polytheism in that uh, what people believe in these Eastern religions and what Nebuchadnezzar believed is, yes, there uh, are multiple gods, but our God is the true God. And the fact that we defeated your God is proof that our God is the true God. So they would go and they would find the holy place. They would desecrate it. They would take what's the best from it. And they would take it into their God's house as a badge of honor. And so Daniel is pointing this out. and He's letting us know there's a spiritual aspect to what is happening. But not only does Nebuchadnezzar come and take over uh, uh, the, the land, he, he targets people who are in a royal family. We see this in verse 3 and verse 4. And he targets young men specifically. And most of these young men are probably, uh, Daniel at this point is probably around the age of 16. And the Bible says that he targets people who have no physical defect, right? Um, I mean, they are like Idris. They're like Brad Pitt. They are, I mean, they are no physical defect, all right? Uh, some of y'all think they look like you. They're like, oh, yeah, that look like me, bruh. Yeah, he's talking about me. They're good looking. They're suitable for instruction and all wisdom. They're knowledgeable. They're perceptive. They're capable of serving in the king's palace. So they go and they get all the nobles. They get the best of the best from Judah, the sharpest, most intelligent, most learned people. And what they're going to do is indoctrinate them. Now, let's think about this. Why are they going after the nobles? Why are they going after the best of the best? Well, they're going after the best of the best because if they can break the spirit of the nobles, if they can break the spirit of the royals, then they can control where the masses go. If they can bring under submission the heroes of the Israelites, then everyone else will fall in line. It's similar to what we see in culture today. Often what happens in Hollywood and the way in which our most prominent, noticeable people go on an issue is the way in which the masses will eventually go. Because after all, these people have it together. 
They've got the education, they've got the cars, they've got the lifestyle, they've got the Instagram followers, they got the Twitter followers, they got the swag, they're setting culture, right? In the same way, Nebuchadnezzar is going to come in and he's going to try to persuade uh, the way of, of the people that he has just taken captive by targeting the best of the best. And here's the question that we want to wrestle with as I set up this book, okay? Because a lot of these things are going to be reoccurring. The question, if you're not familiar with the story and you're reading for the first time, is what is Daniel and his friends going to do? Now, it's more than just four of them. It's a, it's a good number of them that's royal. This is the top, the elite. But what, it, what are they going to do? Now, I want you to imagine being a 16-year-old and you've lived a great life. Most of your life, you are the standard. You've, got lux- you've lived a very luxurious life. You've got the top education. You're at the top of your class. You're taken from your homeland into another homeland in chains. And sudden you show up in Babylon, which is about 30 minutes uh, outside of uh, modern Iraq or Baghdad. And you show up there in this beautiful kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar knew uh, plushness, okay? Um, He knew great architecture, uh, architect. And he, I mean, it's just beautiful. You show up in this land and all of a sudden the chains come off and they say, here's an opportunity for you. You can have a similar lifestyle that you had when you were back at home. And instead of being a a slave, now you can be a servant of Nebuchadnezzar. And all you have to do, and he's going to give us some categories right here. All you have to do is learn the Chaldean language and literature, enjoy the rich, plush food, take a new name, and do whatever we say, and all of this kingdom is yours. I mean, what do you do when, when the bottom has fallen out of your life? When the things that you expected and that you wanted is crumbling? When your hopes of raising a family, of, 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 of killing it uh, in your business, and, and the things that you daydream about, they've all come true and all of a sudden it's gone. And you can have that. You can have comfort. You can have affirmation. You can have peace. You can have joy. You can have all these different things. All you have to do, all you have to do, all you have to do is assimilate. This is the direction that this country is going into. This is what many people feel all over the world is newer to Christians. Um, Not because America is a Christian or nation or was founded as a Christian nation, because it wasn't. While there were some founding fathers who were perhaps Christians, most were deists. You can throw your shoe at me later. Uh, A lot of y'all just miseducated. Most of them were universalists. Uh, when you look at the foundation of our country and some of the atrocities that went on, <laughs> uh, this, is, this is what happens. You can go read historians like uh, Rodney Stark uh, and, uh, and do that. You can email me at lskeen at uh, sojournchurch.com. Um, right? But, but they had a Judeo-Christian language and worldview where it was convenient. Okay? So 
as Christians in America has had a comfort because there's been this freedom or exercise of religion, but it's becoming less, less and less popular. And what are you going to do when you start feeling like an exile, when it's no longer popular to be a Christian, when just saying you're a disciple of Jesus is automatically going to get you some snares and, and people are going to bring some, some energy towards you and assume that they know what you believe and why you believe it. What are you going to do? Well, God has called you to be loyal to the truest royal. He's called you to be faithful among the faithless. He's called you to hold on to what Christians have believed for over 2,000 years since the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is how you do it. First way is to determine not to conform to the ungodly ways of, of Babylon. We see this in verse 8. The Bible says Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or the wine uh, he drank. So he asked for permission from the chief eunuch not to defile himself. So Daniel is determined to be faithful. And the way that he is determined to be faithful is that he has thought through what is happening in a very nuanced and careful way. And he has chosen to embrace courage rather than fear. And he has seen that what's happening amongst culture, what's happening with King Neb and the boys is that they want to slowly indoctrinate me and to get me to conform. And what I'll do is I'm going, to, I'm going to be wise as a serpent but gentle as a dove. There's some things I'm going to say, okay, that's what we see in the text. The Bible says that they come to him and they teach him their language and literature. And Daniel has no problem with learning their language or literature. And I think it's, it's important as Christians that we are cultural exegetes, that we know the language of the world, that we're reading the literature of the world. That we understand the worldview in which we are engaging with. Je Jesus did. Uh, Paul does. You have, to, you have to know the times in which you live. So he says, okay, teach me the language. Teach me the literature. And this is all so that he can serve the king. And then it's interesting here. It says that not only do they give him a language and literature while he's in isolation. That's part of, uh, that's part of let me just say this. That's part of being indoctrinated into a culture. It's to isolate you. It's to make you feel like you're alone, like you're an anomaly, right? It's to make you feel like you're crazy, okay? It's to make you feel like you're archaic. It's to make you feel like you're a fool. It's to make you feel like you're old-fashioned. So they, they strip him from his land, make everything feel like it's archaic, make it feel like you're, you're, still a, you're just a caveman, you're just a cavewoman. Time has progressed, Right? I know it's tight, but it's right. And so they teach him his language, they teach him his literature, and then they want to lure him further and further into it, and he refuses to, to eat the food. Now, I really had to think about this week, especially in light of verse 6, because the Bible says that they're also going to change their names. Um, and what Daniel does in verse 8 is he doesn't buck against the name change as much. Throughout the book, he's going to be called uh, Belshazzar, which is the name of a Babylonian god. And each of his friends are going to be given names uh, that point them to uh, their Babylonian gods. And Daniel even is going to take, uh, in a semi-way, take the name upon. 
Uh, I think it's interesting that, it, uh, that he's more than likely the writer of this book and that while he's reporting the other guys, he's always mentioning, the, he's always mentioning their Babylonian names, right? Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But a lot of times he just calls himself Daniel. He keeps his Jewish name. Um, but he's going to even embrace their name. But what he's not going to do is embrace their food. Why? Well, some people would say it's because he's Jewish and he thinks uh, that he's trying to keep up with the Jewish dietary laws and that he knows that if he eats these laws, he'll become unclean. Um, and that sounds good, but the problem with that is not only did he deny the laws, he also denied, uh, uh, I'm sorry, the, the, the meat and the food um, uh, that was most certainly offered into idols, but he also de denied the wine, right? And as a Jewish person, he could have took the king's wine. There's nothing uh, that would permit him to do so unless he's a Nazarite, but he doesn't take the wine. So why is it that he refuses the food and not the other things? I think it's because he thought this through and he understood his culture. In Daniel chapter 11, verse 26, we see these words, uh, those who eat his provisions will destroy him. His army will be swept away and many will fall slain. So Daniel later on is uh, interpreting a, a prophetic vision and he's talking about uh, a future kings that will come in and he's saying, hey, those who eat his provisions will destroy him. Why? Because back in Eastern culture, if you ate the king's food, um, it was like going into covenant with the king. If you ate royal food, you were saying that I, I am a friend of the king. And perhaps that's why in the Proverbs, you see uh, the, the writer of the Proverbs saying, be careful when you sit at a king's table, put a knife to your throat rather than eat his food. So he understood that he was being not simply just forced into a lifestyle because he had the opportunity not to, 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 to do that. But he understood what was happening is that they were kind of forcing him into a covenant to say, I am going to be loyal to this royal. And that's where he drew the line in the sand. He said, nope, for me, this becomes an issue of conscience. And he goes to the eunuch and he says, I do not want to defile myself. This is where I have to draw the line. And this is the message of the scripture for Christians, that God has called us to be wise and to know where to draw lines because he set us apart. And we see this language in the Old Testament, be holy for I am holy. We see Jesus giving us this language in the New Testament where he tells us to be in the world, but not of the world. We see 1 John, the book ends with little children, keep yourselves from idols, keep yourselves from the ways of the world. We see this at the end of 1 Peter where Peter says the same thing to the church, be ye holy for I am holy. Pa Paul talks about being undefiled. James in James uh, uh, chapter one said, true religion is this, is to look out of widows and orphans and to be unstained by the world. James goes on later on and says in James chapter four, verse four, that to be a, a friend of the world is to be an enemy of God. God has called you, Christian, to be holy. What does it mean to be holy? It means to be set apart. Now, for some of you all, hearing the word holy is a trigger warning. Um, I mean, it just makes you uptight because you grew with the language of holiness. And what that meant is, is that you, had, uh, to, that you got to have no fun and life was a killjoy. You grew up in a time with the holiness movement, perhaps, where men had to dress and look a certain way, almost like... Uh, 
Amish, if you're Amish, no offense. Um, and women had to wear pants, right? Uh, couldn't wear pants and couldn't wear makeup and you couldn't go to the movie theater and you're in church for four hours in the morning, four hours in the evening and people talk in strange languages like, and they say things like, I should have bought a Honda, right? Over and over, it's like I should have bought a Honda. Glory, hallelujah, mm. right? And it's just this movement where what comes with it is just this, this pain. Like you can't dance, you can't have fun. That's what you hear when you hear holy. Right? Um, and when the Bible talks about holiness, it's talking about a posture of the heart. It's talking about being set aside for God, searching the scriptures, looking for, for his will and to live it out wisely in a culture. And it's not always black and white what that looks like. Um, now, there are things that are black and white. There are things that are clear, but it takes wisdom. And so God is, is, is equipping a, a, probably a teenager to stand boldly and to say, I am going to live for my king, and I'm going to do it wisely. The second way in which we remain loyal to his royal is by living as if God's favor is upon you, because it is. It's not only just by being holy, um, by living as set apart, by, but it's by living uh, with God, as if God's favor is upon you. It's by having a, a gospel confidence, some gospel swag, um, believing that God is looking upon you and he is smiling upon you because, he, because you are his. You're rooted in your identity. There's a sense in the story in which Daniel was just rooted in who he was. He was trained in a way that he should go and he's not going to depart. And I'm sure the king, this is the king's table. Like, I'm sure it was some great food. It's like, man, I never, I never tried that before. Like, what is that? Right? But he's like, here's where I draw the line because I know if I eat at this table um, that I will be lured into your worldview and there will be expectations of me to conform. And Christian, God has called you, do not be conformed to this world. We be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And being in the world and not of the world, again, it has less to do with necessarily what you wear. While I do think that there is, is a line, because God does call us to think and be thoughtful about what we wear, because what we wear can uh, uh, be a, a signal to where our heart is. And, and it has more to do with just us holistically not being conformed to the pattern of this world. And for some of us, man, we care way too much about being cool. And we are terrified to stand out and to be different. We are terrified for someone finding out that we actually believe the Bible is true. We are terrified to speak up boldly and to say, this is what God's words say, and this is what I believe. And what I'm calling you to is not to make assumptions without asking me particular questions. We are terrified. And God's invitation to you is what, what Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.7. God has not given you the spirit of fear, but love, power, and a sound mind, self-control. 
It's for you to, to hear this word of 1 John chapter 4, the perfect love cast out all fear. And there's times where you're going to be uh, uh, anxious. There's times where you're going to feel afraid, but you have to root yourself in the identity that God has given you as his child and to believe that he is for you and he's not against you. And if all of the world is against you, if he's for you, you're going to be okay. Daniel had gospel courage and, and gospel strength. To say, no, this is where I draw the line. And that's what the text said. And I'm praying that God will raise us up as a church in the midst of a culture that's become, become more and more hostile, that cares less about being cool and more about being faithful. Less about being accepted by the world. And that cares more and more about our identity in Christ that we have been justified, that we are declared righteous, that we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people who have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light, that we are a city set on a hill, and that even though the world may scorn us and look at us as we live in light of him, in relationship with him, and value that more than being accepted, more than being famous, more than having followers, more than being uncomfortable, that God will not only keep us, but bless us. And what God is calling us to is not arrogance. This gospel swag that I'm talking about is, is not uh, being prideful. It's not walking around like we got it all together. I'm blessed and highly favored. It's not putting off this air as if we're perfect because all of us are imperfect and all of us got a closet that we're trying to keep closed. But the gospel says you can open it and unpack it, take it to the cross, and say, I'm messed up just like you. The difference is, is I'm bringing my brokenness to Jesus and submitting to him as Lord, and he's sorting things out for me. Where do you get that from, preacher? I thought you preached the Bible. Well, look at your text. Glad you asked. Y'all so crazy. Look at what Daniel did in verse 8. So he asked permission from the chief eunuch not to defile himself. He asked permission. There's a humility that's, that's in that. He said, you, you're my authority. I'm going to come to you wisely. Look at verse 9. Because God favored him and God granted Daniel kindness and compassion from the chief eunuch. From the chief eunuch. Verse 10. Yet he said to Daniel, I fear my Lord the king who assigns your food and drink. What if he sees your faces looking thinner than the other young man your age? You should endanger, you, you would endanger my life with the king. So this eunuch is feeling something in his heart. Maybe he's watched Daniel, he's seen him learn the language. There's just something about Daniel, right? Something about Mary. No, no, something about Daniel. Everybody's like, man, there's just something about this kid. And Daniel's probably in a posture of prayer and humility, and he's probably begging out to God. We see throughout the rest of the book that he's a man of prayer. It's like, God, help me. And when he comes to this eunuch, the eunuch says, man, I can lose my life. And what does Daniel do? Daniel has a plan. He's thoughtful. He's taking time to think through the consequences and through his response. He's like, Peter, be prepared to give a defense on what you believe. And he's allowing his, his, his speech to be seasoned with salt. 
It's not coming to him arrogantly. Verse 11, so Daniel said to the guard whom the chief eunuch had assigned to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then examine our appearance and the appearance of the young men who are eating the king's food and deal with your servants based on what you see. Based on what you see. Now, Daniel's probably thinking to himself, like, I don't know. I could become thinner. But there's, there's just something in Daniel that's saying, my God is faithful. There's something in Daniel that says, you know, I wasn't there, but I, I've heard some stories. I've heard some stories about Abraham and how he walked up a hill with his son Isaac. And how he didn't know how it was going to turn out, but God told him to sacrifice his own son. And just in time, God gave him a ram. Abraham's like, wait a minute, I heard some stories about Moses and how his back was to a, to a big sea and, and Pharaoh and his army was after him and, and, and everyone was afraid and people started to turn on him, but he heard the voice of the Lord say, just lift up your staff and how, how the sea was, was lifted and God's people walked on dry ground. He said, I, I'm, I'm, it's not guaranteed, but I, 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 I heard some stories from my, from my grandmother and from, from Big Ma and from Medea about how God has a way of, of showing up and, and how even though he doesn't show up when I want him to, he has a way of showing up right on time. Oh, eunuch, if you would just, just test him, just, just try him. I, I heard a song that said, oh, taste and see that the, that the Lord is good. Blesses the, blesses the man who trusts in him. I, I heard that he could make a way out of no way. That he could be a bridge over troubled water. I heard that he is the, the balm of Gilead. I heard that he has a way of protecting him and keeping his people. Just, just try, try, just, just taste, just, just watch and see what the Lord is able to do. Just give me some vegetable. Get, br bring the green beans. Bring the spinach. Just, just yeah, yeah, yeah. You give me the kale. I'll, I'll try it for a little while. Just, just watch and see what the Lord could do with a little water. And the Bible says that God, <laughs> that God, God favored him. God looked from heaven and he said, that's my child. That's my son. That, that's, that's the one like, like Job, even though he slayed me, yet will I praise him. That's the one that says having a relationship with me is, is more important than power and, and position and being, being like, look at, them, look at them boys on the block hanging in there rather than slaying to get ahead. They're just going to be faithful to in, a, in a nine and five. Look, look at my son. Look at my daughter. Look at how they're walking with their heads up saying, I am, am the head and not the tail. I am the apple of his eye. And he may not come through like I want him to, but he has never failed me. And if he allows me to go through hardship, if he allows me to go through rain, it's because he's, he's nurturing me to grow. Daniel's going to lay a foundation in chapter 1 in which he's going to be able to build on in chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. And some of us, are, the, the problem is, is that we haven't yet laid that foundation. 
Every time things get hard, we run to Babylon. Every time things get hard, we run to the king's table. We run back to Egypt. We believe the lie of the enemy that pleasure and, and, and posh is, is, is better than, than sticking it out with the Lord. And I just want you to know that you're, you're selling yourself short from experiencing his peace, from experiencing his love. You, you won't know the comfort of the Holy Spirit if you, if you never allow yourself to be put in uncomfortable situations. What's your, what's your table? What's that thing that Satan brings out to you and say, just keep eating this and you'll be okay? What is it about Babylon that's enticing to you? This is the vision of this perfect life, perfect family. It's the vision of being debt-free. What, 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 what is it that Satan entices you with that allows you to forget about God's faithfulness? God's invitation for you today is to find your courage in him, is to live with humility, trusting in his sovereignty, is to embrace the fact that if you are in Christ, you are more loved by him. The love that he has for you can fuel you towards faithfulness. Last thing. Remaining royal to his loyal also can happen when we see that God's favor, uh, that God can make you 10 times better. Excuse me. God can make you 10 times better. I just want to close real quick. Look at verse 17. God gave these four young men knowledge and understanding in every kind of literature and wisdom. And Daniel also understand visions and dreams of every kind. So God is going to bless them. And he's going to allow them to excel. Now here's what's important. Being faithful to God doesn't mean that you are going to excel in the way that you want to excel. It doesn't mean that you're not going to lose some stuff. You may lose your job. You may get kicked out of that program. You may lose your family. It may not turn out good, but in his kingdom and in his timing, it will work out better for you as you are faithful than if you were not. I'm going to say that again. A lot of prophets died. Hebrews 11, a lot of people died being faithful to God because they believed in a better city to come. And they didn't get to see or be fulfilled in the way that they thought that they would. But God met them where they were and were able, every, and, and they were able to flourish, maybe even in death, even in martyrdom. Think about Stephen and how faithfully he stood and proclaimed God's word even to his death when people picked up stones to stone him. The Bible says that his face shone like an angel. So no, Stephen didn't go and, and, and become the, the ruler of Rome or, or whatever and excel in his career, but he experienced the peace of God in such a way that he looked like an angel. Close at verse 20. In every matter of wisdom and understanding that the king consulted them about, he found them 10 times better 
than all the magicians and mediums in his entire kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. And so he, again, brings up the same point that he makes, but he uses peculiar terms of 10 times better. And I just stop by to tell you that God is able to make you 10 times better in the midst of exile, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of pain. And God is inviting you to trust him and to believe that. And some of you who are in high school, God is calling you to stop compromising your faith when you're around your friends. Stop conforming and trying to use the speech of your friends, middle school, kindergarten, I don't care how old you are. Stop finding your identity and fitting in. And know that God can make you 10 times better. He he can anoint you in such a way that your friends, they may tease you because you're odd, but at that age, they tease everybody. But they'll they'll begin to ask questions. What is it about you? They'll begin to pull you aside and say, "Uh, there's just something, something about you. You just have a peace. You just have a resolve. You just have wisdom. You always quote this man named Jesus, like, what is it about him that makes you read about him and learn? You, you go to these services on Sunday night called S2. Why are you doing it? For you college students, I can imagine how hard it is walking around campus and how fearful it may be sitting in the class where your teacher is, is coming against what you believe in, in, in Orthodox Christianity. But God is saying, I can make you 10 times better. I'm the one that exalts. I'm the one that promotes. I'm the one that that leads. Don't don't fear what position uh, you're going to get or not get. Just be faithful. God allowed Daniel to rise to prominence, and he became a man of God within a wicked system, and he still flourished without ever compromising. And every time we'll see in this book, it looks like it's the end of Daniel. God shows up, and he comes through. God is in the business of empowering people who are faithful to him and exiled. And ultimately, we see this in his own son, Jesus Christ, who, though he ruled the world, became man, put on human flesh, lived a perfect life while in exile, having enemies on both the the right and the left. And yet he kept his eyes on on, on his father's will. And he was crucified. And he ended up 10 times better because right now he is our risen savior on the right hand side of the father and the earth is his footstool and he's coming back to make all things right on a white horse with many crowns. Like, look at me. God said the same is true for you. That a crown awaits you. That's imperishable. We're a young church. And it's going to be a great temptation for us to be lured into the culture, to rethink things that's clear in the Bible, to think that we're wiser than God, to try to do hermeneutical gymnastics to stay cool and relevant. And when we do that, just know you're eating at the king's table. And whatever that thing that you're trying to escape in order to escape suffering, another issue is going to be found. And if you don't have the gospel chest to stand up, it'll be the next thing. And it'll be the next thing. And it'll be the next thing. And before you know it, Jesus is just like everybody else, a wise teacher.
that has some good things to say. Gird up. Put on your big boy pants, your big girl pants. Abide in Christ and watch him work through you. This is how it works in the kingdom of God. Every Sunday we celebrate what Christ has done for us by remembering what the coolest person in the universe did and that he bore a cross. And instead of looking cool and being praised, he looked like a donkey or a fool. We break bread to remind ourselves that his body was broken We drink wine or juice to remind ourselves that his blood was shed. We take a piece of bread, we dip it in wine or juice, the wine is marked by twine, and we remind ourselves that this is the way of the kingdom, that there is no resurrection without death and without the cross, and that the truth buried will always rise again. And we take this together as a family, remembering that we need community, we need each other. And we remind ourselves that we're not an anomaly, though we may be in exile, that there are 7,000 who have not bowed to Baal and that God has raised up a remnant. Those in the front, come to the front. Back, go to the back. Gluten-free communion is to my left. If you're not a Christian, we ask you not to partake in this meal, not as a sign of judgment, but this is just an invitation for you to just listen. We take this meal week in and week out to simply say and declare that we believe that Jesus is Lord. If you are a Christian, you have some bitterness and, and, and unresolved uh, issues in your heart, and your heart is hard, and you don't plan on resolving that and giving that to the Lord. We actually just depart, forego this today. Uh, remind yourself of your identity in Christ and to use this short time to start working out, that out. Let's pray. Mm. Lord, we believe Help our unbelief. Lord, we need you. We need you to to help us to to build a foundation on a solid rock and not on sand. To trust you at your word. To believe that Jesus is better than whatever temptations, whatever pleasure uh, that we feel every day in our heart and in our soul. We need you to, to help us to sort out the things that are a mess and to come clean and to have hearts that are, are new. We need you to embolden us with courage and humility to help us to be like Jesus, to be both a lion and a lamb. In Jesus' name, amen.